Good morning, everyone. Welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. I am absolutely thrilled that we have as our conversational partner and guest, Dr. Paula Green, an amazing psychologist, uh, the lead organizer for Hands Across the Hills. I heard her on NPR this past week, had to know more about her, went to her website, went to the website of Hands Across the Hills, and then wrote her just cold call email and she so warmly and magnanimously said yes and here we are taping this wonderful conversation so welcome paula green my pleasure it's an honor to be with you i look forward to this conversation together thank you very much so everybody what we're going to do is talk a little bit about what her current work has been since the 2016 presidential election and talk a, a little bit about some guidelines that have come up and they'll be on the screen and you can download them and talk about kind of where we are now because this is in a series of forums that asking the question where are we now and we've had uh, one about the pandemic and we've had one about vaccines and we've had one about the presidential election but this is about talking across the divide this is about creating a safe space for people who see life differently and uh, to have a conversation. So we'll talk about that and then we'll go more deeply into um, Dr. Green's uh, career because she just she's not brand new to this work. So let's start, Paula, by talking about Hands Across the Hills. Can you tell us about how that happened and what it is? Well, there's a wonderful origin story. The background is that I live in a fairly progressive community in the western part of Massachusetts. It's just outside of Amherst, which is a big university town. So there's a lot of academics and other like-minded people living here. And after the election, we called a meeting in the town library. We is a small group that to oppose the Iraq war years before had fashioned ourselves into a little peace commission for the town. About 60 or 70 people showed up, which is good for a town of 2000. And we asked people what they wanted to do. And many of them wanted to bridge divides, wanted to understand how it was possible that people voted for Trump who live in our country and why there was so much antagonism. Of course, there was a lot less antagonism then than has happened since, since then, but already it felt uncomfortable to people. We began searching locally um, for a conservative town around us. Well, I went to clergy people and I went to social workers and community leaders and I didn't get any acceptances. And I could understand that in the beginning of 2017, um, conservative voters did not want to feel attacked, humiliated or blamed for their vote. And so the project went quiet while we thought what to do. And then one of our members saw online an article by a young man who was from Connecticut, but has a PhD in cultural studies and was doing community organizing in Eastern Kentucky in the area of coal fields. And that was a high, 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 high Republican vote turnout there. And uh, we connected with him by email and phone and, and eventually formed a partnership. And without that, it wouldn't have happened because those of us 
um, who are progressive need a partner um, to do the inviting for us. Otherwise the invitation won't be accepted understandably. And that Indeed. was how we started. That's how we found Kentucky and how we started. Wow. And every, I, I'm gonna say wow too much. I know I am simply because this is such a wow filled story. Now let's, let's move ahead. So you found this community. And as I understand, you all actually got together, Massachusetts folks and coal country folks. We certainly did. I, uh, I had to design the program after we had this acceptance and based on my lifetime of experiences um, in building peace in conflict areas at home and around the world, I wanted this to give me as much time as possible with the two communities together. And I would have loved a week or more, but of course I couldn't get that. So we settled on three day weekends and we talked with the Kentuckians about who would go where first and they wanted to come here first. And the reason behind that is during the war on poverty, when uh, many people and photographers and reporters went to Kentucky to study the situation, they felt humiliated, looked down upon, denigrated. They didn't want that to happen again. And they felt they would be on better ground if they came to Massachusetts. So we found them in the beginning of 2017 and in the fall of 2017 in October, the middle of our beautiful fall, fall foliage season, um, they packed themselves into a van and two of them drove the 15 hours between our two locations. And I also believe in homestays because it's so intimate and so informal. And I knew that that would be another way to bond and so each of us, there were about 16 of us on our ends in Leverett, Massachusetts, um, offered to host one of the Kentuckians. And that worked out beautifully. Those, those host and guest pairs really bonded and have stayed bonded over the years. So people came to us and into our homes and into our community. They were terrified. We were scared. They expected a great big city because in their minds, it's all great big cities on the East Coast and were surprised to find themselves in a rural town that has more trees than people. Lovely. I, I do want to emphasize uh, two things that you've just said, and then ask you to continue with the narrative. But the first has to do with the dynamic of feeling humiliated. And I want us to come back to the issue of feelings later on and the feelings of less than, personally attacked, humiliated, that category of feelings. I also want to underscore for the time being the business of proximity, of personal proximity that you um, accomplished with the homestays so that humanity was meeting humanity exactly. as much more basic than ideological identity. So we'll come back to that um, but I just wanted our viewers to know that they kind of give a little roadmap of where, about where I want to go with this. But now, if you don't mind, continue with the narrative. So once you all got together, people, there were homestays. Um, what happened? Well, they arrived late at night. They were due to arrive at around nine o'clock in the evening and must have been after 11 when the van rolled in. And we met them at the town hall and uh, invited them in and served some refreshments and um, got into circles and sang songs as a welcome. 
and we discovered some very musical people in the group and a very musical culture in Eastern Kentucky. So we began to bond right there. And as I thought about the three full days we would have together with them leaving on the morning of the fourth day, I wanted to have intensive dialogue, but I also know that that's exhausting and we need a nice balance. And so in the course of the three days, we had endless, beautiful potlucks supplied by our community. Um, we had music, art, dance, theater games, nature walks, um, church breaks, and all sorts of other things for people to be become a part of our community. We had a public event in our school gym for which we set up 50 chairs and had 300 people. Wow. That was a reminder of how hungry people are for this kind of communication and this kind of reassurance of each other's humanity. So we, I wove in two dialogues a day, morning and afternoon dialogues with all these other activities around the edges and between so that um, people could get to know each other in a, in a personal kind of way, informal. And also not everybody is equally verbal. And some people learn best in other means than verbal. So we made that possible. Then I had to figure out, well, I've got three days. How do I frame it? First day is building the community. The second day is the difficult, more difficult conversations. And the third day is saying goodbye. Mm. So I had that fr overall frame in my mind. And I thought, well, okay, it's the first day. It's the first morning. We do some, a very nice go round of deep introductions and sharing. And then what do we do? What's the conversation about? And I knew that it could not be about politics because we had no foundation for trust. We spent the first morning introducing ourselves in depth and um, developing group guidelines so that people would feel safe. And you mentioned that in your introduction and everybody contributes to the guidelines. And then we hang them up on the wall so that when the time comes that we need to review them, they're right there for us. And the fact that everybody helps to make the guidelines helps people honor them and and mostly it's about safety. It's six different ways of being safe or 10 different ways of being safe that mattered. And then I decided that the first deep dialogue should be about families. Why did I make that choice? Because we all have them. For better and for worse, we have them and we all have family stories. And I thought that would be a way to be personal, vulnerable, honest, and bonding. It turned out to be much more intense than anybody could have guessed. I began with an artist friend who I brought in to help us get started. And everybody made a paper quilt square with a family story. So there were people st standing side by side, working together, you know, past the paste, past the scissors, past the green paper, etc. cetera. And um, then when they got done, this artist hung them all on a big scroll. So we had a family quilt before we even started. And that turned out to be wonderful. So we began family stories. It was not all of us and then all of them or vice versa. It was just as people got ready to speak and, and uh, from both communities, people spoke very deeply. Um, two things happened that were beyond my expectation. One is that two of the people in, in the Leverett, Massachusetts group had Holocaust stories. One had a father from Germany who got out just before the war and one had a mother from France in the same situation. And um, those stories were brought into the circle. 
And those stories don't get told without a lot of tears because they're heartbreaking for everybody. And a lot of courage in sharing them. For the Kentuckians, this was something brand new and astonishing and life-changing. And when the Kentuckians spoke, we learned something brand new, which was about life as a coal mining family, about the dangers of being in the mines, about the diseases that follow being in the mines, about poverty, despair, opioids, unemployment, isolation, and feeling ignored, which was part of the voting situation. Um, and desperate to get the coal mines going again, which Trump had promised them. So the empathy that went across the circle and around the circle was astonishing because we learned more about the condition of their lives and they about our lives than anybody expected. And um, by the end, we were hugging each other. And it didn't matter who had voted for whom pretty quickly. What mattered was the, the deep humanity of sharing the human story with its shares of sorrows and joys and seeing that those sorrows and joys are shared, that each life has sorrows and each life has joys and it's not dependent on where you live or what your privilege is. Mm. So we were off and running faster than I thought. You were indeed. And I want to honor the fact that you don't do what you just described, i.e. establish trust, um, have uh, shared empathy and stories, and then a sense of organic affection without taking time to do all of those things so very carefully. So I by no means in rushing on to other aspects of this mm. want to in any way indicate that I am not quite stunned right now and moved at what you all experienced together. Uh, that's quite a miracle and it can happen everywhere and yet it's still miraculous. I think, I think part of what, um, what I want to say now is that um, it takes skill. I've yeah. been doing, I've been facilitating dialogues in zones of conflict around the world and in this country for 40, 50 years. I'm a psychologist, I'm a peace builder and I'm comfortable with emotions. And I think for someone who's just starting out, this would be terrifying. But I used to be a therapist once upon a time and I've learned to hold people through emotional spaces and um, stay with them non-reactively, caringly. And that helped to make it safe. And I, I do. Facilitation does matter. Um, and, and I feel like my main job is to hold the container kind of like like this, really a container um, to contain the emotion so that they don't go too far and people get overwhelmed and then it's not productive either. It's not even comfortable for people, but also not to be too hesitant. They just find that middle ground where emotions can be expressed, people can cry, 
and we can move on. Yes. Because it, this is not a therapy session. This is a dialogue session. At the end of the day, our job is to move on. We're doing this in the service of building a trusting community as a model for how people in this country, if we take the time to humanize each other, can be successful. Indeed. Well, let me say at this point, parenthetically, that I note that you have more than 40 years experience, both as a psychologist, peace educator, facilitator, and mentor in the field of intergroup relations and resolution of community conflicts. And you are Professor Emerita of the School for International Training, and you have worked in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, Europe, as well as the United States. So I am really feeling uh, my own awareness of your skills um, and your ability to be non-reactive as you go into some very emotional terrain. So having said that, go ahead. Yes, please. There were times when, when I worried about this, this, how this would be. And I would say to myself, Paula, you've sat with Bosnians and Rwandans and Indians and Pakistanis and Sri Lankans and so many others where there has been such violent conflict and you've held those circles. And if you can do that, you can do this. So I had a lot, I had a reservoir to draw on of past experience that gave me the confidence that we could get through this. Although it was, it was intimidating, so this was tough. And I also knew we had the time that we didn't have to do everything in six hours. Right. We had the space for things to unfold and people to come out and, and um, stories to be shared. So Paula, was there indeed some new element that you hadn't encountered before simply because you were doing this kind of work in your own country? Yes, I was, I was in d- differently invested. I was not a third party. Yeah. Not other. It was me and my community. Right. Not my vote and their vote. Yeah. And my worry about my own country and the repercussions of that election. Yes. So in that way, it was very different. But again, um, as a therapist, one learns to hold back some of one's own um, interests for the sake of the process. Yeah, right. So, um, Wesley, my dear colleague who's helping us with this, will put up uh, the list of the guidelines in a few moments, But bef- because I, I just want to ask you one or two questions about the guidelines themselves. However, I do want to note that when you use the word safe in the NPR interview, that's what got my attention. Now, a little bit of a story. Uh, I have this dear trusted friend who's a neuroscientist, Dan Siegel, who's a psychiatrist at UCLA. And he's written about attachment theory and trauma, et cetera. And he has what he calls the four S's. And it's so easy to remember. And it's about repairing someone's low attachment. And they are feeling seen, soothed, safe, and thereby secure. And when you use the word safe, it evoked all four of those S's for me. Because, uh, back again to a point you made earlier, there has been, there's so much personal, when you dig deep, there's so much personal humiliation and pain underneath our polarization in America right now. That as I talk with 
progressives and I talk with conservatives in my own parish where we are trying to hold that space you were talking about of being a big tent church. When I scratch beneath the surface, I get humiliation and pain. And for conservatives, it can kind of orbit around the word deplorables, having been called deplorables. Um, for progressives, um, I received a heartbreaking email from a lesbian friend of mine in the parish who said it's very hard for her to even want to have a listening session with people who voted for Trump because she feels that they are personally attacking her because the Trump era attacked her as lesbian. Um, so I'd love for you to address the issue about safety and that whole level of, I'm not sure I even want to enter a room where I'm with people who I think have been against my being or my persona. Okay, so I wanna start with the safety then we'll get to the political issue. Um, human beings all have underlying needs and um, the core basic needs of course are survival needs which have to do with food and shelter and water, et cetera, but have just as much to do with safety and security. And I've seen here and all over the world that people will fight and kill in order to accomplish the aim of feeling secure and safe. It's that fundamental to who we are as human beings. And the election created a total lack of safety in this country. Part of that lack of safety was the people who voted for Trump feeling um, their lives had not been safe. The um, New World Order was not meeting their needs, was not giving them jobs and fulfillments and opportunities. They were left behind and abandoned. And um, the people who voted against Trump were felt unsafe because of the implication of that vote. And underneath that lack of safety is fear. And I used to teach um, causes of conflict a lot all over the world. People want to know, how did we start this war? How did this happen? How did we fall apart? And when I would go down levels and levels emotionally to try to discern what was at the bottom. And it's always fear. Fear feels like this fire um, that lights up a cauldron of all the other emotions. So dealing with fear um, is hard. Most people would rather kill or shout or demonstrate in any way possible rather than, than feel the vulnerability of expressing fear because, because expressing fear makes us totally vulnerable. And so we displace it and we cover it up with anger and rage because we can't touch it. In one of the things that I learned that was very important around all of this, and I've learned this before, but it was reinforced with this project was the issue about respect and dignity. Another human need is the need for respect and dignity. And when that is taken away, um, it's very hard to repair. Yes. 
it's very was very and that's why the kentuckians came to massachusetts because they didn't want us coming there with their fear that we would um we would see them as cardboard cutouts yeah and they would again be reinforced in not having enough dignity enough respect and one of the things that happened in this dialogue program which people talk about when we're on zoom now together is um we feel safe together mm. we respect each other they saw us as cardboard cutouts also elite liberal east coast educated people um so we both had to get over those stereotypes and get to the humanity underneath and it happens through respect and dignity through offering that and feeling that and when we feel accepted we're much more likely to reach out than when we're feeling um disrespected dismissed dissed however you want to say it right um you also asked about um how it felt to be in a room with people who vote so differently yes believe so differently well our our task in this dialogue was not to try to convince anybody of the wrongness of their vote or to get them to change their mind on key social issues like guns immigration etc our goal was to understand each other and whenever anybody would slip into a little cajoling convincing or criticizing we we'd go back to our purpose and remind each other this is why we're here and one of the most profound things that we all learned as a result of this is that a person is much larger than who they voted for and that's such a beautiful thing to learn i wish our whole country could learn it now and that who they voted for is a constellation of a lifetime of formation and family on top of which is all the difficult input from the media especially oh, yes. especially now in the world of social media oh, it's yes. enough to make your head spin there's so much chaos out there yes yes it, it impacts people yes. the vote is not arbitrary it's it's a lifetime history and current input but it's not the whole person and what we discovered reminded ourselves of is a whole person is so much more than their vote and we've come to care about each other although we disagree on voting and most of the hot button social issues right oh let me just breathe oh when i get big stuff sometimes i just need to breathe i know um <laughs> that's not all the way the most professional but this is so Very professional <laughs> <laughs> it's so deep and powerful and moving oh paula so because of time we do, we do have to put up the guidelines now and um that will be edited in i just wanted to note on the heels of what you just said that one of the guidelines is we're not here to try to change somebody's mind that's right and i found that to be so magnificent are there other guidelines that you think and 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 it's 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 only one page it's a, a beautiful set and people can carry them around to and, and we're going to be showing this before thanksgiving dinner whether you have thanksgiving dinner yeah. around a table or on a zoom um because you, you always have that intractable relative who you know wants to change your mind um 
so are there other uh, points about the guidelines that you always are really wanting to facilitate getting up on the newsprint before you launch in? Um, yes, and I'll tell you a story from Bosnia that, that um, taught me how important this is. Um, I went to Bosnia two years after the genocide there to begin what became a six year commuting project and now a lifetime of ongoing commitment. And I was working with people from the Serb side of the conflict and the Muslim now called Bosniak side of the conflict. And <clears throat> we were meeting in one of these old Soviet hotels. And um, as people came in, this was our second meeting, there were um, name tags and markers for people to write their names. And that's usually a pretty easy thing to do, but they began to fight because half the people were writing their names in the Western alphabet and half in the Cyrillic alphabet, which was emblematic of the nature of the conflict there, that it was about identities. And um, they were screaming at each other. I couldn't understand a word because I do these things with translators. And um, it was only after we got people into the room and got settled that I saw that we didn't have any guidelines yet. They hadn't even entered the room or taken off their coats. They were just in the lobby getting their name tags and, and um, other equipment for the, for the sessions. And uh, it taught me that this has to be done really upfront. And as I said earlier, done by the group, not by the facilitator. So I have all these things that you're gonna put up here on the wall in a minute in my mind, but I don't suggest them. I ask people, what makes you feel safe? And that's where I get you no know, interrupting, speaking for yourself, I'm not trying to convince anybody, being respectful, sharing airtime, and managing confidentiality. Because we humans love to gossip and it's destructive. And now in the recent decades, I've had to deal with cell phones. And so I've had to add that to the list. And in some places of the world, people are so attached to their cell phones, they don't want to stop them. But it's not okay in a dialogue setting. In fact, I read some stories that say, if you put your cell phone down, turn it over and it's on your desk or your table or your lap where you're sitting, it's still a distraction. So they have to go out of sight. It's really hard for people. So those are the important guidelines, but it's, again, the group decides and the group agrees. And we say, do we commit to all of these? And then if two hours later, something happens, we can go back and say, let's review the guidelines, which doesn't blame the person for having said something wrong, but let's go back and review the guidelines and see if we can agree again on, on respectful speaking, for example. Powerful, powerful, powerful. So because of our time, let me ask some uh, questions um, about the context of Atlanta right now. So I'm in some meetings with uh, two international groups that are based here in the States, plus the Carter Center. Mm -hmm. And the three organizations, one's out of Princeton, have identified Atlanta as one of the three hotspot cities until the runoff, the senatorial runoff that we have before us, where the stakes are so high. The other two are Portland and Washington, D.C. And in fact, this coming Saturday, um, we have some intelligence 
that uh, a group, um, and we don't know to what degree the militia quotient is high in this group or not, uh, are coming to demonstrate at the Secretary of State's office, who has, I mean, I'm sorry, his home. And this is the man who's been overseeing the recount. The second um, factoid is that in observing the militia groups in the US, Georgia is one of the top five states where there's more militia activity. So we had a, a, a meeting last night talking about interrupting violence, de-escalating violence, proactive work. Interestingly enough, one of the things that we've been participating in as a facilitator of interfaith prayers is a morning M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G into unity project. And you were you had mentioned if we don't share our griefs and sorrows and, and joys, um, we don't have a leg up on this. And, and the idea is that that can cure global violence in real, in real hotspots when you share your sorrows and griefs. So uh, I am even feeling this in my chest as I'm asking you this question, where I sit right now geographically, um, we're in for um, heightened tension and turning up the political, ideological, polarization, divisiveness, temperature in our city. Just what comes to your mind from your experience about what we need to keep in our mind as we go into this as instruments of nonviolence and de-escalation? Hard question. Um, Biden keeps talking about lowering the temperature. And I think it's a, it's a very wise way of saying it because we can't and don't want to stop protest, um, but we need to lower the temperature on the hatred. And you as clergy have a very significant role to play. You're visible, you're trusted, and you're respected. And there are all kinds of churches with all kinds of voters. And to whatever extent the churches in Atlanta and in other cities in Georgia can organize themselves together to speak as one voice, to encourage nonviolent demonstrations, to, to remind people that the other is not their enemy, that the other is a full person, just as we've been talking about with this project, is a full person with a, a family and obligations and needs and fears. And if you as clergy can do that in this state, you will lower the temperature. And I don't know a group better suited than clergy at this moment. So in some way I'm tossing the ball back to your court by saying, um, you've got a significant role to play. And you can use media, much as, much as militias may use media to incite violence, you can use media to lower the temperature. And you can get these messages out on social media far and wide in the state. You can harness the energy of young people to get young people to speak to each other. That's so helpful, it's powerful. And rings so deeply true. Um, thank you. Uh, there is an effort to organize clergy in Atlanta. And actually, 
throughout Georgia um, with certain messaging. And I'm certainly going to introduce what I've learned from you into that packet of materials we're sending out to clergy. And then, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this up. We could go on and on and on. Um, do you have any messages for clergy to talk inside their own congregations in terms of, in the interest of creating churches that are safe spaces and where the hands across the hills dynamic can be tangible inside a church synagogue mosque yes first i want to say that if you do this in the state of georgia i hope somebody will write it up or speak it up so that it becomes a national model because we're really hungry for new models and the religious institutions in all of our states could benefit from this so i hope that that you use it not only to serve the people of Georgia, but to serve the people of this country and work together across religious divides and beliefs. Assignment accepted. Keep me posted. In, in terms of um, a congregation, um, it's such an intimate setting, even if it's a large congregation, such an intimate setting in which to keep speaking about humanization and the multi-dimensionality of, of each person and the long history that brought them to their current political beliefs. And to, and to, to, to invite them to, not only invite them, but set up structures within the church where people can dialogue with each other. They already have something in common. They're church members here. And you can find people with the skills to do this and invite them in and do it with potlucks and, and other ways to make it warm and safe again. And, um, and I, would, I would put that up front as a goal for 2021 for the church to make it, a, make it a year, give it a name, make it a year of caring for each other, a year of kindness, a year of mutual respect, however it gets worded but it's a very good office, use it well. And if you can do it then with another church or a synagogue or a mosque or whatever, so much the better. We had, oh. a, we had a Jewish Muslim group going here last year, a dialogue group that was very meaningful for people. And it came up after the murders in Pittsburgh, that was the impetus for it, but it was very important. And I'm also um, facilitating with others, um, African-American, white American group. That's, that's very deep. And especially after the George Floyd murder became very, very much a part of our lives with a lot of committees and repercussions and, and bonding. So wherever we can put people together, it's a gift for them and for everyone. Yeah. I'm so caught up in holy pride right now about the fact that we have now committed to a partnership with Ebenezer Baptist Church, Dr. Mm -hmm. King's Church. And during Lent, we're going to study together Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. I've just finished reading it. And we'll be in small groups. And I'm so very excited. 
but all of what you've taught me and taught us will enrich all of this. Um, our time has ended. We, I hope that we can continue con conversations, but bless you, my friend. Thank you so much for your teaching, for your facilitation, for your magnanimous and generous agreement to have this conversation with me today. Thank you very much. I am touched by you, by your words, your thoughtfulness, by what you're doing in this congregation and by the possibilities that exist for forevermore. And I'd be honored to stay in touch with you. No, thank you. Together. And I wish everybody well. It's a very important month coming up in Georgia and all hands will be needed. Thank you. And thank all of you who are watching. Um, I'm so happy we have this in our archives and you can send the link to your friends and spread it, broadcast it throughout the world. Um, have a great, great Sunday and a great Thanksgiving.